Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly Cash Like More Hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders Teach, a Curbsiders mini-series, bringing you your weekly dose of edutainment. I am joined by my co-host, Dr. Ira Kurzanovskaya. On tonight's episode, we'll discuss clinical teaching with the MedEd TWAG team, Dr. Jeff Stetson and Dr. Jennifer Spicer. Before we get started with that, Ira, will you remind the audience what we do on this show? Sure, Molly. We are the internal medicine podcast for all things medical education. We use expert interviews to bring you teaching pearls and practice changing knowledge to inspire the next generation of medical educators. And a reminder that most episodes are available for free CME credit through VCU Health for all health professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. Hey, and I'm Chris the Chew Man oh, Chew, and I get to hang out with you guys today. <laughs> And I haven't quite gotten the, the flow of having <laughs> you're, you're our first co-producer, so oh, thank you for Love you. thank you for, for inviting me. Um, I had such a great time tonight, and I was able to bring my my friends, Dr. Jeff Stetson and Dr. Jen Spicer, tonight. Uh, we covered basically the basic skills of teaching, and, and you know these are like sort of when you think about the hierarchy of teaching, which Jeff and Jen do on Twitter called the MedEd Twag Team. Um, this, these are sort of like the basic skills before you build on anything else. So Dr. Jeff Stetson is an internal medicine physician, clinical educator, researcher, and advocate. He works as an academic hospitalist in San Francisco, but is transitioning to both inpatient and outpatient general internal medicine in Chicago. His non-clinical work is focused on professional development for teachers and learners in the clinical setting with the goals of making learning fun, effective, and empathetic as possible. Jennifer Spicer, MD, MPH, is a passionate medical educator who works as an infectious diseases physician at Emory University in Atlanta, where she's currently directing the internal medicine residency's medical educator track and subspecialty curriculum. In the classroom, she loves experimenting with innovative teaching techniques. On the wards, she enjoys building a fun and supportive learning climate to foster learning among students, residents, and fellows who she works with. So, without further ado... Um, I don't have a horrendous pun, so... <laughs> we have not been including horrendous puns. <laughs> they just come up naturally, or they don't, which is okay, too. <laughs> well, hi, Dr. Stetson and Dr. Spicer. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, is it okay if we call you Jeff and Jen for this show? Jen yeah. or Jennifer? Jen is great. Perfect. Yeah, Jeff's great. Great. Well, since you are both new to Curbsiders... We would love to hear a little bit more about you, um, just to let our listeners get to know you. Jen, we'll start off with you. Could you give us a one-liner to describe yourself? Yeah, sure. So I'd say that I'm a 36-year-old female medical educator, an ID nerd, wife and dog mom, and an extreme introvert, actually, who is obsessed with reading Netflix, travel, and trying new foods. Awesome. How do you we read appreciate you. <laughs> Reading and Netflix. We appreciate you breaking out of your introvertism to join us. And how about you, Jeff? Yeah, I'm uh, I'm a 36 year old man 
uh, general internist and an aspiring big E educator. Um, I'm a husband and father of two and a half, if you count the dog. Uh, and I have a distressing college football addiction. So go Buckeyes. Oh, I'm a UGA <laughs> fan. We're going to have some issues here. <laughs> Sorry, we, we don't come across each other often. I love it. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you, Jen. Uh, I wonder if you could let us know kind of what uh, book you feel that every physician should read. What's on your top list? And maybe we'll go to Jeff first. Do you want to share? Yeah. Um, I hope I don't steal yours, Jen, but mine is Mindset um, by Carol Dweck. Um, so growth mindset's real hot right now. This is where the psychologist at Stanford who got it all started. And I think medical education, if if we were focused on growth and learning rather than performance um, as a culture, things would be a lot better. So that's my recommendation. That's a good Jen, one. do you have one? Yeah. So normally I say like make it stick or a book on science of learning, but I've started reading this book called Doctor's Orders that I find really fascinating looking into how our culture of medicine, and especially comparing kind of academic and community medical centers and thinking about whether people are U.S. medical graduates or international medical graduates and how we have different strata that's really unfair in medicine and how we continue to perpetuate that. And so it's been a really fascinating book that I really think that all of us should read at some point and kind of reflect on. Interesting. Is it about like the official policies and like mm -mm. rules around getting spots? It's more about the culture of it's an ethnography, um, but okay. written really well. And this um, sociologist just followed around two programs, a community program and a um, academic program and kind of talks about what he learned from it. And I think it it's fascinating and it has made me reflect a lot on changes that I need to make for myself. Awesome. Can I ask a question? I want one. Absolutely. All right. Um, who is your favorite person to follow on Twitter and why? I think there's only one right answer and Grady Doctor. Oh, <laughs> yep. Jeff, you can't go first and steal that one from me. <laughs> you can say there. You, th there's only one right answer, Jen. I just said that. So you, no, you I, should have the same one. I do think that's true. Just like the patient stories are something that just really call to me, especially with COVID going on and the stories about why people vaccinate or don't vaccinate has really got me thinking a lot about how I communicate with my patients. Shout out to Ashley Mullen, though, who does a podcast with her. Mick Mullen. Mm -hmm. Sorry, mm -hmm. who does The Human Doctor with uh, Kimberly Manning and excellent. I followed her as soon as I started listening, and I'm sad that I did not follow her earlier. That's an excellent podcast. People need to check it out. You guys might inspire me to join Twitter. I'll think about it. <laughs> Do you guys have some uh, best advice that you've received as a learner or that you like to give as a teacher? And Jen, we can start with you. Yeah. So as a teacher, I think the best advice that I like to give and think about myself too is to put yourself in your learner's shoes. I think often it's it's hard to remember what it was like to go through training and training's tough. And so I think that any time... I find myself not quite sure how to handle a situation or frustrated, you know, because people aren't paying attention or things like that. I try to think about like, what was it like when I was a learner? 
And I find that always helps me reframe things and figure out how I can teach my learners better. Because really, we're there for them. And I would say, um, and this applies to medical students when they're figuring out what kind of doctor they want to be or um, residents when they're thinking about fellowship. And, and for me, as a faculty member, it's like, do what brings you joy and kind of the rest will follow. Um, I think I wasn't necessarily doing that when I first joined faculty and have since focused on the things that make me happy and the things I want to do for free, like working with Jen. And that's actually led to a um, more rewarding path than I could have imagined. So, I agree with that one. Cosine. So important to keep in Hard mind. Hard cosine. Yes. <laughs> and Jeff, you brought up kind of growth mindset earlier and kind of thinking about the ups and downs and all of our careers. And I just wonder if uh, you and Jen could maybe highlight for us your favorite failure along the way um, and maybe what you both learned from it. And maybe we'll start with Jeff. Um, yeah, so I, um, a recent one came, comes to mind. Um, uh, so I'm a hospitalist by training, um, or by choice. I don't know. <laughs> and <laughs> part of what we do at my hospital is work in the emergency department because at the VA, our whole emergency department is staffed by internists. So I get to do that sometimes. And this guy came in from Northern California, rugged dude. And he had this huge gash on his arm from barbed wire right over his elbow, and it needed to be repaired. Um, and I called general surgery, got their advice on, like, how to do it. But I still, you know, if someone comes in with a heart attack or COPD, I'm ready to rock. But sewing up a large wound on an arm was... Uh, outside my comfort zone and I felt uncomfortable, but I was like, I'm in the emergency department. I'm an emergency room doctor technically right now. So I, I should do this. The general surgery residents advice. I like cleaned it the best I could and sewed this thing up and it looked good from my standpoint. And then it came back infected a few days later. And I think I had sewed it up too tightly. Uh, I guess it needed more room to breathe. I don't know. I was doing <laughs> I was doing my best. Um, but I should have I knew I was uncomfortable. I felt uncomfortable. I should have insisted that it be done by a surgeon and not myself. So that was the lesson is, you know, when you feel uncomfortable, don't do it and get get somebody else. Thanks, Jeff. I think we can all relate to and find a time where we felt that kind of pit of our stomach discomfort and been like, um, I think I need a call for help and uh, get someone um, to help me. And Jen, do you have one for our listeners? Yeah. So I, I thought I've been thinking about this for a bit while Jeff was talking and have lots of kind of, you know, individual kind of like one-on-one -on -one failures with, with things that have happened. But I think what I always like my um, mentors highlighting is when they failed to achieve something that they were hoping for. And so um, I had applied to a medical education leadership position, um, you know, previously that I was really excited about and really hopeful that I was going to get. And, you know, I didn't get it and was really bummed about it. It really impacted me for a couple months. And then in hindsight, what I've realized is I ended up having much better opportunities that I would have never gotten if I had gotten that position. Like 
I am doing things that I love. There are a lot of administrative things I would have had with that position that would have prevented me from doing some of the things I'm doing right now. And so I don't think that everything happens for a reason necessarily, but I think that there's always some good that comes out of failure or not getting something that you want. And so I've tried to just be a little less bummed about things like that. Garth Brooks, some of, uh, what is it? Some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. Mic drop, Jeff. That was really good. I was going to go with when a door closes, a window opens, but I think Garth Brooks may have said it better. <laughs> but yeah, Jen, I, I totally hear that. It's kind of that one moment that until you reflect on it, you're like, oh, that actually wouldn't have gotten me where I am right now. Mm-hmm. And that, and that's what I was hinting at when I said, like, do what brings you joy and the rest will follow. Is like, I, I, similar to Jen, I was pursuing things that I thought I should be doing if I wanted to be on this career path. And those things weren't necessarily working out. And in the end, I think I would have been less happy had I just been doing what I'm doing with Jen and these other things that I do now. So um, yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. Just find what makes you happy and it typically works out. Uh, Anyone have burning picks of the week that they want to share? What's a pick of the week? Um, It's (laughs) mostly for the co-host, but uh, you're welcome to share too. (laughs) Kind of just anything that sort of is your pick right now. So movies, books, um, jump ropes, uh, (laughs) but we can also skip it in the interest of time. I can share one briefly. Um, So I was gifted a planner. Uh, It's called My Goals and it's uh, the Australia's leading empowering stationary brand. And I had never heard of it, but their main product is called the Goal Digger, like G-O-A-L. And I have to say it really, I mean, I am somebody who's like teaching about SMART goals, but for myself to write them down like day by day and week by week in a very thoughtful kind of way, it really blew my mind. So if anybody is looking for a planner, but really kind of a way to take dreams and turn them into action, or um, I don't know if we're allowed to say expletives on here, but their kind of other line is to get done. And so that's kind of the two books that they sell, The Gold Digger and that journal. And it's amazing. Like it has you write down your core values and then your purpose and then kind of the things that you're trying to do in three months, six months, nine months. And so I think to all the advice that we've heard from Jeff and Jen about kind of doing what you love and pursuing those goals, it's, um, I thought it was pretty great. So, you know, if you want to support Australia's leading empowering stationary <laughs> brands, that would be one way to do it. That's awesome. It sounds like it, it pushes you to really reflect and think in ways that we can often just ignore and running through the day to day. My pick of the week is pretty similar. Um, we recently went shopping for my kids because of school, and we found that the original Trapper Keepers are uh, are now selling again. So my wife bought one for herself and, and made her like made her week. She's like Aww. so happy. So <laughs> do they have Lisa Frank? <laughs> I don't know, but they have some very very retro looking covers with the same like <laughs> uh, you know folders that you know, all the paper slide into the middle and get crunched and all that stuff. So all looks the same exactly like when I remember in elementary school. So is five star still a, still a thing? Mm-hmm. Apparently it's from Mead. Uh-huh. <laughs> Molly, yeah. I have some yeah. Lisa Frank if you need it. Uh, oh, thanks. Circa, circa the 1990s. It's there for you. Awesome. Well, great. Let's uh, get started with a case from Cash Like Memorial just to jump us into the conversation. Uh, Chris, do you want to share the case with us? Yeah. 
So Tim is attending starting his second year as a hospitalist at Cashlack Hospital. He's feeling strong in his clinical skills now, and he's had more experience on the job. And wants to focus this year on leading a great team. He's starting with a new team tomorrow and wants to plan a place to make sure he's doing all he can do to support his learners. Luckily, he found your tutorial on clinical teaching. So the first question would be, how do you create rapport and inclusion on the team? And what are some of your favorite questions to get the team talking, to get to know each other a little better? Yeah. So I think that um, the way I create rapport is like when I first meet a team, I make sure that no matter how busy the day is, we spend some time getting to know each other. But the trick is you have to make sure you remember the things you ask people, right? So you ask them, you know, not only what's their name, but what do they prefer to be called and ask them something fun, but don't ask the question of like, tell me a fun fact that we all hate, right? Because then you have to like, see if you can come up with a really awesome fact. So instead, what I try to do is just, you know, ask a question like, what's your dream vacation? Or what's your favorite food? Or something that's really easy for people to, you know, come up with an answer, but gets people talking. And then I tried to set goals with the learners and ask them, like, what do they want to accomplish during their time with me? Because I find that that really helps get people interested in knowing that I care about them as an individual because I'm trying to support their learning. I don't know, Jeff, what's your favorite question? Yeah. Um, so I, I want to say one of my least favorite is where are you from? Um <laughs> A lot of people like that can be taken a lot of the wrong ways and helps. And especially when we're thinking about diversity and equity and inclusion, that is not an awesome question to use. So I will just put that out there. Please don't ask people where they're from anymore. But I do think identity is important. So I spin that and say, what does home mean to you? And you can use, you can describe that any way you want. Um, and some people will say, like, Around my grandma's kitchen table is home for me, you know, stuff like that. Um, or what's a food that reminds you of home? And then people can start to teach you about where they come from and what's important to them. And I really love those questions that people can take anywhere they want, but it tells you something a little bit deeper about who they are and where they come from. Not where they're from, but <laughs> what got them to where they are now. Is there a, a spiel or or a way you introduce yourself when you first come on, on rounds to, to everyone is that sort of embodies what you you feel that uh, to sort of jumpstart like that feeling when people are there? Well, um, I, I definitely have my expectation spiel, but I, I save that for for later. When I first get there, I, I try to hide in the background as much as I can so that the team can be the residence team and I'm I'm just that attending consultant. So yeah, I try to sneak in as quietly as possible, say as little as possible during my intro and just really focus on getting to know the other people. But I try to answer the same questions like what reminds me of home? The food that reminds me of home, Chris, is is a, a buckeye. Just just so you Ice. know. Nice. And then and then I save my spiel about who I am and what my goals for the team are, my expectations for a little later in the day, but definitely the first day. And you mentioned kind of trying to take a backseat to the senior resident. Do you meet with them ahead of time before teaching rounds and kind of set goals and come up with a plan for the team even before you meet as a whole team? Totally. Yeah. I try to um, set up a 
phone meeting with them a week or two in advance if possible to just kind of get on the same page about me wanting them to be the team leader and what my role will be, how I like to structure rounds and see if that meets with what they were hoping to do. Just kind of get on the same page about how we're going to approach the team and then they can start off that first day feeling empowered to to be the boss. Jen, and do you have a particular way that you approach, maybe not your, you know, minute by minute schedule, but how you kind of go about that first day, both with introductions and maybe you had a Zoom call the night before with the resident, but kind of what you like to do to get yourself kind of in the mood for attending? Yeah, so um, things are a little bit different for me being an ID consultant. So I think that it results in I lead two different types of teams. So one of my teams is an inpatient HIV service where it's just me and residents usually. And all the residents are second or third years. So it kind of puts me back in that fellow position almost where I am kind of the one leading the team. And I actually really enjoy that. I think that like I loved being a senior resident. And so in that setting, I'm a little bit more the person coming in and and setting everything. But When I'm with fellows and when I'm on the consult team, usually I don't have much of a chance to talk to my fellow ahead of time because they're writing consult notes till late the night before for their old service. And so usually that first day I do go in and I kind of take charge of being the one to kind of introduce things. And, you know, similar to Jeff, I start off by just having conversations and getting to know people and then saying like, all right, let's start rounds. And then at the end, I say, this afternoon, I'm going to ask you about your goals. And so again, I table that discussion until later. But I also set the expectation that the fellow is going to be leading things from then on out. So the day changes after that. And the fellow and I kind of talk later that day and figure out how they want to run the team. I love that. Do you ever touch base with the attending that was on service before you and say, how are things going? And, you know, how's the resident? And you know, what were goals that were set between you two and then we can sort of follow that on? Or do you try to come in with a clean slate so you're not biased by maybe what someone else may be coloring the team before you come on? This is a tough question. I've done it both ways. And so it used to be that we all kind of switched at the same time. So we actually didn't have that opportunity, but now we're on an X plus Y system. And so there is a lot of switching. I have found that I often do ask a little bit about what they were working on with the learners and what the goals were. But I'm really careful not to let that create impressions in my mind about what I think about the learners. Like I always reevaluate them myself because I think it's really unfair and that's how a lot of bias gets perpetuated. And so Again, I don't want to start from scratch if they were working on something together that was a learner's goal. But I try to be really careful about what assumptions I make without reassessing myself. And I'm similar. I like to I like to get their thoughts, but I, I treat it kind of like a holdover presentation, like a patient that got admitted in the middle of the night. You know, the situation, the context was very specific to what was happening then, and they need a fresh set of eyes. I have new data that I'm going to gather new data and really reassess the whole thing, keep what they said in the back of my mind, but they get a clean slate, both patients and and trainees. You're my go-to for analogies now, Jeff, is what I've decided (laughs) just from this conversation. Uh, And Garth Brooks lyrics. (laughs) So, John, you kind of brought up 
being aware of trying to avoid bias in how you're looking at your learners. And certainly there's a lot of bias in medical education and just kind of that our, our learners will face interacting with patients. How do you discuss that with the team and how do you define allyship and upstanding? Yeah, so um, this is something I've actually learned a lot from Jeff and also from Kimberly Manning have been kind of the two people that I've learned the most from about this. And so really, I define allyship and upstanding as making my learners feel like they can be themselves in the learning situation. And so whatever that means. And I think that'll be a little bit different for every learner. And so I do not actually have a spiel at the beginning where I talk about that. And that's something I've been thinking about. But I try to take situations where I notice microaggressions or other things that happen and have that as an opportunity to then have a discussion as a team, kind of like a debrief of an adverse event, right, that happens on the team. I handle it the same way. And part of that is just my general approach is I try not to have too much of a spiel in general at the beginning of a rotation because everybody's stressed. It's a new day, a new rotation. They're trying to learn the patients. And so I, I try to express my values to people. And then I take events later as teaching instances. But I'm actually really interested to hear what Jeff says about his spiel, because I think that he does a little bit more than me. And I've been debating whether to change what I do. Yeah, so um, I'm very lucky to be at UCSF, where a lot of some of the thought leaders on allyship and upstanding are one of the leaders is um, actually a resident, Justin Bullock, who's far more accomplished than I will ever be. He recently uh, came out with another paper, but a really, really important one about how to address microaggressions in the clinical setting. And he breaks it down into three steps, which are the pre-brief, the actual addressing of the microaggression in the moment, and then a debrief. So Jen mentioned the debrief and how to react in the moment, but I think the pre-brief is, is really important. So backing up to definitions, I see allyship as an attitude and a commitment to helping everyone to feel comfortable in a setting, and in our case, the clinical setting. And then upstanding is the behavior, is the act of demonstrating allyship. It is when something happens that might make someone feel uncomfortable to, rather than being a bystander and letting it happen, it's standing up and saying something. So part of my expectations when I talk about like, hey, I want you to get to morning report and noon conference. I uh, plan to teach from 11.30 to 11.45 every day. Uh, like all that benign stuff, I say bias and discrimination are present in our clinical space and microaggressions are going to happen, whether they're based on race or gender or sexual orientation or what have you, you know, body habitus, anything. They're going to happen and I want to be the best ally I can for all of you. And what Justin taught me is that not every learner wants the same thing. And it's really important to ask them deliberately, if something were to happen, what would you like me to do? And I do this as a whole group because some people not, might not know how to answer that and others may. And it's really enlightening. I've heard lots of different things. And I'm very conscious of 
my role and my positioning as a white cisgender heterosexual male attending physician like i have a lot of power in this this space so if any time a microaggression happened and i step in there am i taking agency away from from learners so i definitely want to make sure that i'm not overstepping my bounds and not giving them a chance to work on making themselves feel more comfortable. So that pre-brief is is super important. And then I think what happens in the microaggression, when a microaggression happens in the room, that's a really hard thing to do right. And I think it's actually less important to nail that than to do the pre-brief and the debrief. Because um, we're all learning, we're all getting better at these touch-and-go situations. So what happens in the instance is important, but Making sure everyone knows you're on their team up front and then talking about it and getting feedback on how you did, especially, is really important afterwards. So that's how I think about it in a nutshell. I really like that, Jeff, because you kind of set up the culture for the clinical learning environment and kind of what is going into that, whether it is a spiel or, as Jen mentioned, kind of the values that are important uh, for her, setting those kind of very explicitly and naming them. You're both in your various frameworks and kind of the debrief and the pre-brief and the instant are are sharing your approaches to creating that kind of brave and psychologically safe uh, clinical learning environment and, and culture. And I wonder, how do you all, like this, the paper that you mentioned is a great example, but how do you all keep up your skills as upstanders and kind of getting better at allyship? Because as you're teaching learners to do that, I wonder if there's any practical tips for our listeners about how you maintain those skills. I think, um, I mean, I was certainly scared to address microaggressions when they happened. I'm still it still makes me nervous, but I look at them as an opportunity and then I look at my trainees as my teachers because they know many of my students know more about this and they know way more about their lived experience and the bias they've experienced than I ever will. So I say I'm going to do my best. How would you like me to do this? Please give me feedback afterwards something happens, I step in, I do my best, and then I say, hey, how are you feeling? I'm really sorry that happened to you. When I said what I said in the room, how did that make you feel? Could I have done any better? So I use them to teach me and to help me to do better and grow in that area. And this is such a huge topic. It's you know something we could probably talk on for hours. Um, yeah, so certainly, Jennifer, if you wanted to add a point to that, but Ira, maybe you and I should plan for a future episode as well. Totally. I just love how both, and Jen, feel free to chime in. I just love how both of you kind of highlighted your vulnerability and your humility and setting up a culture that lets learners also show up as their full and kind of true self um, and learning about that. So I just really wanted to highlight that. Moving on to another topic, um, unless you have less thoughts there, kind of thinking about being available for your team and giving them the space to be autonomous and to grow, but also making sure that you're present for them. Um, what kind of factors, how do you sort of think about that? And how do you make a plan with the team about as an attending, how available you'll be? Jen, if you want to start off. Yeah. So I share my cell phone. That's the first thing I do. And I often do it even before the day when the fellow has sent out the email. We all share our cell phones. And I think there was a thread on Twitter about this a couple months ago. You know, how do you make people 
feel comfortable. And we all said you use a lot of memes in text threads, right? So you text about things, you kind of joke around with people and share things as a team via text. And it really lowers that barrier for people to contact you. I think especially with fellows, I find that it's a little bit different because fellows start to think that they shouldn't be calling you about stuff, especially at night, right? They get paged to answer a question that's really tough, and they think that they're not supposed to wake up and bother the attending. So especially at the beginning of the year, I tell fellows that they should call me or text me with anything they're not sure how to handle. And in the first couple months, I tell them, contact me for everything. You know, I don't want you to have to feel like you have to make that decision. Just contact me and you can just tell me what you want to do or talk me through it. Like, I'm not there to tell you what to do, but I want to be there to support you. And so I think by setting up that expectation that they can call, it just makes people feel a lot more comfortable because I knew I was always like, do I really need to call about this? I think I can make this decision. Um, And I think that jump to a fellow is really tough because there's usually not someone else. You're answering a phone call from home. You don't have somebody else to talk to about it. And so that's what I try to do is really lower that barrier for communication. Similarly, all the, I won't reiterate what Jen said, some, some additional fun things to do um, or to just drop in randomly on the team and just say, Hey, look, I'm around. And <laughs> they, uh, I think they really appreciate you just checking on them physically. I always make sure to let them know when I'm leaving the hospital. Um, so I always swing by and say, Hey guys, um, I'm leaving. Where are things now? Do you have any questions before I go? If anything comes up, please, please call. And then I agree. I think a lot of People at UCSF use um, WhatsApp. I think it's might be more secure than regular text messages. I don't know. Um, but what WhatsApp threads with the whole team can be a lot of fun and a great way to, to stay in touch. In terms of how often you're communicating with the team, do you do like an afternoon check-in or do you let them like call you with every patient? Or do you say, hey, you know, just after you get a couple, just give me a call and we can run, you know, like how, how do you approach that? and like. How does it factor in your, your feeling about, I feel like you're always trying, as an attending, I'm always trying to like do that balance between like, I want to give them ownership because that's important for them as learners, but I also want them to feel that they're supported and trying to find that balance. Uh, how, how do you approach that? Personally, I leave it up to the resident. I say, I'm available 24-7, call me anytime. I don't need to hear about all the attending or all the... um admissions as they they come in, unless you want to tell me about them. If you feel comfortable and feel 100% like you've got it, I'm okay. If there are any questions, I'm here. I'm big on autonomy. I don't know. That's definitely not everybody's practice, but I really am like, if you feel 100% comfortable, I'm cool. If you have any questions, please hit me up. I think as a consultant, I do things similarly, but slightly different. So with my fellow, I don't have them tell me about things as they come in. And I'm also with my team all day, right? Because we round on old patients in the morning. Then we come back and we do new patients until, you know, who knows what hour, um, depending on how many new consults we've gotten. So I tell the fellow, 
You decide what order we're seeing patients. I have no clue how many consults you've gotten. So you have to keep me on track. You have to make sure I stay focused. You need to tell me how many we got and what we need to do. And so for the fellow, I let them be completely autonomous. But when I'm on the inpatient HIV service, you know, that's hard, right? Because I have second and third year residents taking care of, like, these are only patients with really advanced disease that they don't really have the expertise to always know what to do or what to work up or recognize how sick they are. So what I do with those residents when they're admitting in the evening is I say, I check in on them before I go to bed. So like I text them and I say, hey, did you have any admissions you want to talk about before the evening's done? You know, if not, we can talk tomorrow, but I just want to make sure because I find that that makes them more comfortable talking to me about it than feeling like they have to approach me with everything. And I'll tell you, they end up discussing almost every admission with me just in very general terms, like, oh, we have someone with diarrhea. This is what I did. Like, is there anything else I should throw in? Because they're just not as comfortable with it. So I think it somewhat depends on the skill level and the types of patients that people are caring for, how you handle that autonomy spectrum. But I think the more autonomy you can give, as long as it's supported, the better. And I like I like what you do, Jen, sending that last text message before you go to bed. Really, I, I can imagine that it lowers the activation energy for that resident to engage with you because they have to write you back something. Yep. So yep. <laughs> <laughs> even if it's, you know, I'm cool, then then that's that's good. But they're going to write you back something and they're like, it makes them think, maybe I could use Jen's help on this mm-hmm. one. And I like that. Since I've started doing that, I've had a lot more discussions. I didn't do that the first time I was on that service. And the second time I was like, wow, I should have been doing this the first time I was on. All patients were safe and well taken care of, but it made the residents feel better. It's also really normalizing, Jen, because you tell them this is something that I'm going to do. And it feels like, oh, you know, Dr. Jen's just checking in. She like she does with everybody. It's not just because I'm the second year admitting this resident mm-hmm. or admitting this patient. It's because she this is her practice. And I wonder just to push both of you a bit further, Jeff and Jen, I kind of I've hear I've heard a lot of like autonomy and managing kind of um, to trust the resident or trust the fellow. And I wonder how you decide about that trust versus how do you kind of decide you're going to be maybe more of a helicopter attending and kind of at nine o'clock be like scrolling the labs as they're talking to you about the patient if they if you do that at all. And maybe Jen, if you don't mind ch- chiming in first. Yeah. So um, I take the first 48 hours on service to really thoroughly chart check the important things, right? I don't look at every little order, but you know, if I have a DKA patient, I would be looking and making sure the drip is in correctly or that they're transitioning them off the drip correctly, right? The same things we learn to do as a senior resident. And I do that really carefully for two days. Like I watch them do physical exams on new consults when we go and see them. So that I understand where that resident is at or where that fellow's at and know how much I can trust their skills. And it's not about them being untrustworthy. It's more about like, what is their skill level and what do they still need help with? And what stuff do I not need to check as much? Because there's some stuff that like, if they say they saw or heard something, I know that that's right. 
I know that their chart review was super thorough, right? So I don't do the whole big chart review for them unless they aren't sure about a patient. So that's how I handle it up front initially and then kind of adjust how I do things from then on. But I'll tell you what I learned as a consultant is I am seeing patients all day. Like I'm with a team almost all day. I have to check the chart and see patients at some point, right? And I learned that I have to do that before rounds, the old patients. Like that's the only way I can make my day go well. But I hated seeing attendings like see patients before rounds or chart check before rounds. It made me feel like they didn't trust me. So I am very upfront with teams at the beginning. And I tell them, guys, I get in at seven, I chart check everybody, and I go see as many people as I can. It's not duplicating work or because I don't trust you guys. That's the only way I will get home at a decent time. So the good news is this means on rounds, you don't have to spend all this time telling me all the data, right? And so let's just discuss patients on rounds and we can make rounds shorter that way. And this will also give us the opportunity to compare notes. So I make it clear that I do that and why so that they don't feel that it's because I don't trust them. Totally agree with what, what Jen said. I won't reiterate any of those things. I will. The other kind of area of data I look for is how and when are they communicating with me? So when they are anxious about a patient or nervous when do they come to me with that that information? How do they come to me? What is kind of the threshold that they feel uncomfortable? And if I'm noticing them not communicating with me enough, I will be more vigilant of the patients. But if they demonstrate to me that they are someone who, when the slightest inkling of discomfort comes up and they're they're asking for help, that makes me feel a lot better. Yes, we like to have people check in. Uh, what practical techniques do you use to convey clear expectations when you're starting with a new team on rotation? I think this is one of the most important things we can do as team leaders. And I think of it in terms of cognitive load. And this is, you know, getting a little wonky here, but I'm just going to say to make it simple, there's the cognitive load of the work our minds have to do to take care of patients, to give presentations, to do all the things that are expected of trainees and of learners. Um, and then there's this other thing called extraneous load. These are the things you don't need. So if you're like worried that you don't know when to eat, you don't know when you can go to the bathroom, you don't know when it's okay to leave, um, these are th things you will be worrying about and will make it harder to do the job that you're there for. So I think the better expectations you set, the less work the the trainees' brains have to do on this meaningless stuff, and they can focus on the, the job at hand. So I think it's important to everyone should kind of draft their own vision for, for how they hope their team will operate. And I think it's very individualistic idea, this, this, this dream journal you can have for your team. But I think you need to write it down and then condense it into something that's about a page long that you can share with your team. Uh, I tend to send that ahead of time. And then in person on that first day, I kind of highlight some of those high points talking about how rounds are going to work, the allyship stuff, how 
mistakes are okay and that's part of learning some of these bigger things to just um, ally some fears. And I know, Jeff, that you pull out your My Goals journal and where you've written uh-huh. all that down and <laughs> you show right. that page. Because I'm the, a gold digger. You are a gold digger. <laughs> the gold foil li- lined re- part of that I, journal. I realize that the pod, no one can see my deadpan on, on podcast. <laughs> <laughs> they can feel it. They can feel it. Jen, do you have a way of kind of approaching that expectations conversation? Yeah, I've gone back and forth about this. So I used to send a sheet like Jeff does, but I've asked people for feedback and some people were like, man, I got that sheet and it it just seemed like a lot. And I was like, who am I about to round with? And I've had other people look at it. It's like not, it, it wasn't that intense. Like I don't think the tone, but the issue is written things don't have tone, right? And so I have decided that I do all of my expectations like in person with people so they get to meet me as a person ahead of time. Now, most of the residents know me because I'm involved in a lot of their other educational activities, but they still haven't really worked with me. So I try to keep it short and sweet with high level information and only critical details. So for example, I say, you know, we're here to take care of patients first. So what that means is as a consulting team, it's important that we communicate recommendations in a timely manner, that we offer to be involved with teams, that we are kind when we discuss our recommendations to other people, and things like notes that don't advance patient care come later. So, you know, I kind of have a big value and then I say a few specific things. But I've tried to not set too many expectations regarding what goes in notes or how presentations are done because I don't want people to have to change to me every time I'm on. And so I do try to teach them what a consultant like presentation is like, right? Because the HPI is a little different. The follow-up every day is a little bit different. We aren't doing all of the small details. So I correct them, though. So for most other things, what I do is I I tell them, you know, I'm not going to go detailed into expectations, but I'll be clear if you're ever doing something where I recommend you doing something different. And I'll give you feedback. And so what I do is they give a presentation. I say, like, that was a great presentation, to make it like even more effective on a consulting team, here's how I would tweak it for next time. And I'll give you feedback on that. So I've tried to get my spiel down really short to those important things like teaching is important and learning. This is how we teach and learn on this team. You know, communication with other professionals is important to me. Like, here's how we do it well. Please let me know if there's ever any issues and you know, I'm happy to get involved. But I've tried to narrow it down as time goes on and try to get feedback on it. So, you know, you toe the line on where your expectations are, but you have to set expectations, which also means that at some point you're going to have to evaluate the learner or come across things that may not reach those expectations. And, you know, one of my favorite tweets that you guys did, I think Jeff did the tweet was like, did you check the labs? And they're like, no. And then what's the right answer? And you're right. The right answer is it's all right. Uh, we'll look at them together. And the reason why I know this is like a popular tweet is you guys tagged me on it and I get likes still to this day randomly throughout the week. And I'd be like, what? Oh, is this one? 
Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about judging and evaluation? And yes, you, you need to hold your learners accountable, but how do you do that in like a, a safe way? Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks, Chris. Um, so what this is all about is normalizing mistakes and making room for mistakes. And by doing that, you're actually going to improve patient safety and patient care because we're all going to screw up. We're not, no one's perfect. I'm going to screw up. The students, every, everyone's going to screw up, hopefully in small ways. But if you've let everyone know that, you know, you may have an oversight here or input an order incorrectly there, if you, and that's okay, they're more likely to come to you quickly and you can get it fixed more quickly. Um, so it's about letting everyone know that this is part of being a trainee and you're not expected to be perfect. This also plays into that growth mindset from the beginning is like, you're here to learn, you're here to get better, you're not supposed to be perfect and diminishes the performative aspect of, of medical training, at least when they're, they're with me. So I think that's, that's huge. Um, but you're talking about, Chris, you brought up the idea of evaluation and how you can make someone feel comfortable making mistakes while they may have a grade on the line or an evaluation. And I think what I do and is I'm explicit about what I value, and I value growth, as we've talked about. And so I say, I don't care where you are today. I don't care where you are when we're done in two weeks. I just want to see improvement and growth every day. And I want to see you getting better and getting feedback and putting that feedback to use. And if you can do that every day, you're going to do really well on this rotation. And this works, this helps everyone. So those who feel like their clinical knowledge isn't so great or their PhD who took four years off and is now just coming back to clinical training, it relieves them. They feel like, okay, he doesn't care where I am now. I, th I think I'm not up to par, but he doesn't care. He just wants to see me grow. So that's great. And it also puts the like star performers on notice too. It's like, hey, you may be really great, but I don't care. I want to see you get better. That's that's my job is to help you get better from where, where you are now. So it's really that delta. What's the delta I can create over my time with you? So that making mistakes is okay. Um, as long as we're not making them over and over again, then then you're good. Yeah, I love that. And I think that, you know, when I'm thinking about it, what I tell people is, I want you to be a better physician and teacher when you leave these two weeks, whatever that means for you. So again, some more emphasizing that growth mindset, but I try to role model it. So I make sure that I include me in that and tell people what I'm working on. And I try to role model, you know, when I make a mistake or when maybe someone else suggested something, I didn't think that was what was going on. That is what's going on. You know, I make sure to acknowledge that because I think any time that we role model what we want other people to do, it encourages them to do it. Because, you know, to be honest, nobody that I'm working with is being graded. Like, yes, we evaluate each other, but, you know, it's kind of silly, right? Like we fill out these like performance evaluations but we're all going to get through unless there's like a big issue, right? And so I try to 
forget about the evaluations. I don't work with third-year medical students anymore, which we do still grade at our institution, but we don't grade fourth years. But when I'm working with third years before, I try to be really cognizant of the fact that they did feel like they were being evaluated and graded. It made it really clear, very similar to Jeff, that, you know, I care about you getting better and learning. Like, that's what you're here for. I will check in. I will update you on how things are going. You will have a chance to improve yourself. I love that, Jen, because it feels like we're highlighting that we all have growth edges and that you're role modeling, that you want feedback on that. You want to start a feedback conversation about it and kind of tying in those expectations with kind of the formative assessments or evaluations that you have to do that kind of my expectation is that we're all going to grow. We're going to be better learners and teachers. And at the end, kind of in terms of the assessments and evaluations, I just want to see that that growth has occurred, kind of a la what Jeff, what you brought up. So it's a really nice kind of uh, way to tie those two aspects together and to um, role model that we are all constantly trying to get get better, be better versions of ourselves. Talking about the, the role modeling, um, I think another Another thing that you guys had talked about when you're talking about um, when your tutorials about the hierarchy of teaching skills, another area that I think Jen you tweeted on was about being humble. And I think that's like one of the core bases of role modeling. Can you talk about that a little more? Yeah. So what I realized is it made me have serious imposter syndrome when I worked with people who seemed to like know it all and think that they knew it all, you know, so those master clinicians who like many of us looked up to, it seemed like they always had the answer, but that made me really intimidated working with them. And what I learned as I moved on is like, oh, they're kind of performing actually, like they're brilliant, but many of them are doing these things like looking behind the scenes and seeing things in the chart or reading up on something before rounds. And I decided I was not going to do that at all. I am very open, like I said, about what my process is before. So I'm actually very open about what I do with teaching. So I tell residents, like, I'm here to teach you guys. And so that means that I need to read and refresh about stuff so that I can teach you appropriately. So I tell them, like, hey, if there are new admits coming in, I'm going to look through and see what the diagnosis is you know, or see something major so that I can be prepared to teach you. And so I'm not spending time during rounds kind of thinking about that. And I found that sharing that whole behind the curtain thing makes me seem a little bit less like this brilliant, you know, clinician who knows it all, but makes people really comfortable having conversations. And I realized that all of that is about humility, right? Like we're all going to be wrong sometimes. I'm not going to know what to do sometimes. And so I'm honest about that. Instead of being like, look it up. I say like, hey, you know, I don't know. Why don't we look that up together? Or why don't you look that up tonight and teach me about it tomorrow? Or I'm going to teach you guys about that tomorrow after I look it up. But again, trying to level that playing field so that people, again, feel that they can admit mistakes and don't feel that imposter syndrome that many of us feel in medicine. I think one one thing um, that can help is to go into general internal medicine because um, <laughs> it's uh, yeah that that uh, just I mean I can't stay on top of everything and um, 
I'm constantly learning and uh, saying I don't know, so that really helps. But I think for those who may be struggling with imposter syndrome, as, as Jen was saying, and not wanting to seem like they don't know or they don't belong, if you can reframe humility as curiosity, it's like, oh, this is an opportunity. Like, I'm I want to grow. I want to learn in this area. And I don't know this. So yeah, I'm curious about it. Let's figure this out because I don't know what to do here. So rather than admitting a weakness, it's finding a new path to go down. I love that idea about being explicit about your process of teaching and talking with us in this past hour have shared, you know, multiple examples of, you know, I used to do it this way and I'm trying out this. And I, I just love seeing that, you know, it's a, it's a constant process. We're all learning medicine all the time, but we're all trying to become better teachers. And I think just having that continuous process of, I'm going to try out something new and see how it goes and being open with the people that you're working with, um, I think goes a long way. And, and exactly those master clinicians have sort of taught us not to do that and to kind of hide it. But I, I love that idea of, of being explicit and sharing it um, and coming at it from a place of, of curiosity. That kind of gets us set up for thinking about um, giving short teaching on rounds. So in addition to kind of doing a quick chart check and thinking about some big topics that you want to be ready for, any other tips that you guys have about teaching on rounds, like giving kind of short didactics? Yeah. So when I'm on consults, what I try to do is either teach for 10 minutes at the very beginning of rounds, because if you don't on consults, things always happen. And it did on medicine wards too, but we don't have that like afternoon time where we can like really catch up. And so I learned really quickly teaching doesn't happen. But more than that, I try to do a pearl with each patient. So I tell the team I teach on rounds. And so I will try to respect their time on rounds by keeping it short. But during rounds, I want everybody paying attention because we will do teaching. And so I try to have a single pearl that I teach with each patient. So that's for all of our, you know, follow-up patients in the morning. And that's something that you've prepared ahead of time? Yeah, I've thought about ahead of time. So I've thought... I realized that that's what you have to do if you're going to teach. You have to prepare, right? So I look at the list and I kind of think about a single thing and I resist the urge to teach multiple things on each patient because we could teach endlessly, but rounds will take forever. And then for new patients, I'm having to teach on the fly because I don't know what's going on with them. These are consults that the fellow has gotten while I'm not even at a computer. So I don't usually know what the diagnosis is. So Thankfully, I always have at least, you know, the differential diagnosis is typically what I teach about during those times because we're all having to figure that out together to take care of the patient. Yeah. And um, this question is essentially the next six months of content that, that Jen and I are going to uh, <laughs> provide on Twitter. Um, so The plug for the Bed Ed Twike team there. Yes. <laughs> so we, we've mapped out how to teach, how to actually actualize the teaching part of, of clinical medicine. And so stay tuned to Twitter, MedEd Twag Team, and Jen Spicer, Jeff Stetson, and Yihan Yang now. But I'm a big, uh, I'm a big chalk talk guy. That's a thing. I, um, I actually teach how to give chalk talks. It's kind of a little bit of a specialty of mine. And I structure my day so that we have dedicated teaching time. So I'm this is getting way off track, but um, 
philosophy of rounds is a big thing for me. And my rounds is an hour and a half and we stop at an hour and a half. That's that's it. We see four to five patients and they all have to have things that we're going to learn about them. I go see the rest on my own um, and we can talk about them. But for me, rounds is a learning opportunity, teaching just as Jen was saying. But that by capping it at 90 minutes, that gives my team to get some work done so that they have space to do a more dedicated teaching. And I cap that at 15 minutes. So that's how I I do it. So I'm very deliberate about how rounds work so that I can be more deliberate about my didactic teaching. I love that y'all call that out because I feel like saying something like, yeah, I'm going to teach on this later is like the attending or teacher equivalent of, yeah, I'll come back and see you later, which is what I told every patient (laughs) as an intern. And you just know it's not going to happen, but you mean it like your spirit wants it. So I just love that both Jen and Jeff, you kind of called it out as like, no, I'm going to have this 10 minutes before rounds. I'm going to have a pearl per patient or no, we have our 15 minutes in the afternoon where there's going to be dedicated teaching um, as opposed to just kind of hoping and wishing into the ether that something will happen. Yeah, and I and it, it puts me on blast a little bit if I'm like, hey, we're going to do teaching every day from 11.30 to 11.45. And if I don't do that, like, that's that's pretty whack. So I definitely um, say that out loud so that I have to hold myself um, accountable. I do say we don't do it on the weekends because I have to run home to help my wife with the kids and we don't do it on post-call days, but every other day. That's awesome. You know, one thing that I, I do to keep my, myself accountable is I, you know, I write down the teaching pearls that I've run through when I'm rounding and then I send a summer email every single day. If I didn't talk enough to write a summary email, then I didn't do enough. But if the summary email is so long that I have to write, takes hours to write, then that means I took too long to round. And so that's sort of like, in, in my brain, I was like, all right, I've done enough pearls today. We just need to finish rounds. And we and I was like, I have enough for my email. And that sort of keeps the residents aren't overloaded with too many, too many learning points, but at the same time, everything's sort of efficient. So it's so fun to hear how everyone else does it. So, And the one, the one last thing I'll say is, if you don't know how to write learning objectives yet, you should learn to write learning objectives. I think even dropping a pearl on rounds should have a learning objective. So you need to be be able look at Bloom's taxonomy. These are words. Look them up. Google them. Bloom's taxonomy, writing learning objectives. I think, and this is one of the things I help residents with when they're on my team, is just if you can write good learning objectives that will take your teaching from average to great very quickly, very easily. Well, I think this has been so awesome. We've, we've covered so many practical tips. I really appreciate it. Any last questions, Ira or Chris, before we jump to take home points? No, thank you again so much. Yeah. So Jen, do you want to give us some take home points? Yeah. So I think that being a good teacher requires preparation. And so we just talked about that a bit. So if you want to be a good teacher, make sure that you prepare and you're intentional about it. But I think the other thing is the learning climate and the environment you set on the team is the absolute most important thing. And that's why Jeff and I started with threads on learning climate and all of these topics about autonomy and humility and not judging because 
if you don't have that on the team, it doesn't matter how good of a teacher you are, people aren't in a place to learn. And so I think that people see these often as soft skills and just want you to teach them how to do a chalk talk. And so I want to emphasize that these things are difficult, but we can learn how to do them. And this is the most important thing to learn, because if you're having fun on the team and everybody's having fun, everybody's going to learn so much more, even if you're not doing like dedicated teaching time. So if you take nothing else away from this conversation, make the team environment fun for people so that they want to be there and learning will happen. And then if you have time, be really intentional and prepare learning. But if you don't have time for that, then at least make it fun. Couldn't agree more. If you look at my evaluations from trainees, none of them have ever said, Jeff helped me to think better about ACS or sepsis or he his chalk talk changed my life. Like <laughs> This never happens and it never will. Being a good teacher is not about didactic teaching. It's not about imparting facts. It's about, and this is in the clinical setting, it's about making people feel safe, making people feel welcome, making people feel like they can be themselves, encouraging them to stretch and supporting them as they stretch and giving them the tools to grow. So that's feedback. I love those. Those are, <laughs> those are some amazing take-home points for you too. That's amazing. Thank you. Anything else that you guys would like to plug? Yeah, just uh, just what we're doing on Twitter. We got um, we just added a, a new team teammate, Yihan Yang, to our our crew today, actually. And we have yeah, big plans coming up. So six to nine months of content coming your way, and we're we're really excited about it. So awesome. uh, we're at Jennifer Spicer four uh, at G Stetson MD. Um, and at MedEd Twag Team on Twitter. Well, maybe we will have to have you guys back after you've published your next set. Sounds great. We'd love it. And I mentioned that I, I really like to read. So I'm going to plug a book again because I'm just nerdy like that. I really like to read. So this is going to go back to more of like a really MedEd book. But How Learning Works is one of the best MedEd books. And it's mirroring on this, but uh, it's by Susan Ambrose, Michael Bridges, Michelle DiPietro, Marshall Lovett, and Marie Norman. And I highly recommend it. It's like a very approachable, readable book, but based on evidence. And so if it's something that you haven't read and you're interested in being a better teacher, it's probably one of the most approachable books that I found that has really changed a lot of the way that I approach teaching. Um, and I'm actually probably going to read it again soon because it's been a couple years. And so I feel like I learn something new every time. Jen, it also has a very spicy section about learning objectives. So mm. way to way to plug that um, Era. Don't get hot me topic. I know. <laughs> Don't worry. We've got to end on a high note here. Yeah. <laughs> Another of our favorite books, Jen and ours, mine is um, uh, Small Teaching by James Lang. That one has a lot of things you can bring into the clinical setting. Have you guys read uh, Making It Stick? Oh, That's our bet. third. That's our third <laughs> book. <laughs> one of my favorites. Well, it's written the way they want to teach. It's uh, this is what I love about that book. 
So lots more resources for for myself and for our listeners. Well, thank you guys so much. This has been so great. We really appreciate your time. Thanks for having us. It was great. Thank you. Well, Molly and Chris, I'm so excited for our conversation and just really um, spicy, spicy conversation that we've had today and with Jen and Jeff. And I think the things that I took away from it that I plan to use the next time I'm attending on uh, wards is really to think about how I'm going to intentionally establish a brave and psychologically safe learning environment. And I think the first thing that came up for me is showing my own vulnerability and making sure that learners know that we all have growth edges and here are the things that I'm going to be working on that I would love to have a feedback conversation with them on and also hear what they're going to be working on that so that I can kind of follow them and, and help them uh, in their success and in their growth. I think my favorite pearl, and it's something that I try really hard to do, but hearing about it today really has made me excited to continue to work on it is if you just make it fun. If they're excited to come to show up to work every day and they're open to learning, then even if it's a pearl or two and not like whole clinical reasoning over the two weeks you're with, you know, your learning team, if you make it fun, then they're probably going to be receptive to learning and bring something away from that. And that's something that I'm going to continue to do. So that was one of my favorite pearls from today. I love those. I am going to try to be really explicit about how much I prepare ahead of time for teaching and try to reduce imposter syndrome and not, I don't think I do, but not try to come across as as someone who kind of has all the answers ahead of time um, and just help my learners feel more part of the process that we are all learning this together. So this has been another great episode of the Curbsiders Teach miniseries, bringing you your weekly dose of edutainment. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com slash teach. We're committed to providing you with high value, practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, or contact us at thecurbsidersteach at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Dr. Chris Chu. Thanks to Dr. Matt Watto and Dr. Paul Williams for their support in this project, and to Dr. Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music, and to Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. As a reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit at all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. Until next time, this has been Chris, the Chew Man Chew. And I've been Dr. Molly Hoibline. And I'm Dr. Ira Krzyzanowska. Thanks for listening.